don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. We are continuing uh, from yesterday's episode, Hans Hermann Hoppe's uh, piece, How is Fiat Money Possible? And we are going into uh, how it is that commodity money becomes fiat money. Now, I may actually be able to do this as I've read through um, this whole piece and kind of broken it up. I think I'm actually going to be able to do this in three episodes, so this will be part two of three, I think. Um, It's not quite as dense as I had suspected it was, and this section will probably be the longest one. Uh, So without further ado, let's go ahead and hit section two, um, or part two of this piece, and uh, starting with the section titled, From Commodity Money to Fiat Money, The Devolution of Money. If money must arise as a commodity money, how can it become fiat money? Via the development of money substitutes, or paper titles, to commodity money, but only fraudulently and only at the price of economic inefficiencies. Under a commodity money standard such as the gold standard until 1914, Money, quote, circulated on the one hand in the form of standardized bars of bullion and gold coins of various denominations, trading against each other at essentially fixed ratios according to their weight and fineness. On the other hand, to economize on the cost of storing or safekeeping and transacting or clearing money in a development similar to that of transferable property rights, including stock and bond certificates, as means of facilitating the spatial and temporal exchange of non-money goods side-by-side with money proper, also gold certificates, property titles, or claims to specified amounts of gold deposited at specific institutions, banks, served as a medium of exchange. This coexistence of money proper, gold, and money substitutes, claims to money, affects neither the total supply of money or any certificate put into circulation, an equivalent amount of gold is taken out of circulation or deposited, nor the interpersonal income and wealth distribution. Yet, without a doubt, the coexistence of money and money substitutes, and the possibility of holding money in either form and in variable combinations of such forms, constitutes an added convenience to individual market participants. This is how intrinsically worthless pieces of paper can acquire purchasing power. If and insofar as they represent an unconditional claim to money, and if and insofar as no doubt exists that they are valid and may indeed be redeemed at any time, paper tickets are bought and sold as if they were genuine money. They are traded against money at par. Once they have thus acquired purchasing power and are then deprived of their character as claims to money by somehow suspending redeemability, they may continue functioning as money. As Mises writes, quote, 
Before an economic good begins to function as money, it must already possess exchange value based on some other cause than its monetary function. But money that already functions as such may remain valuable even when the original source of its exchange value has ceased to exist. End quote. However, would self-interested individuals want to deprive paper tickets of their character as titles to money? Would they want to suspend redeemability and adopt intrinsically worthless pieces of paper as money? Paper money champions like Milton Friedman claim this to be the case, and they typically cite a savings motive as the reason for the substitution of fiat for commodity money. A gold standard involves social waste in requiring the mining and minting of gold. Considerable resources have to be devoted to the production of money. With essentially costless paper money instead of gold, such waste would disappear, and resources would be freed up for the production of directly useful producer and consumer goods. It is thus a fiat money's higher economic efficiency which explains the present world's universal abandonment of commodity money. But is it so? Is the triumph of fiat money indeed the outcome of some innocuous saving? Is it even conceivable that it could be? Can self-interested individuals really want to save as fiat money champions assume that they do? Somewhat closer scrutiny reveals that this is impossible and that the institution of fiat money requires the assumption of a very different, not innocuous, but sinister motive. Assume a monetary economy with at least one bank and money proper, or outside money in modern jargon, as well as money substitutes, inside money, in circulation. If market participants indeed wanted to save on the resource costs of a commodity money with the ultimate goal of demonetizing gold and monetizing paper, one would expect that first, as an approximation to this goal, they would want to give up using any outside money or gold. All transactions would have to be carried out with inside money, paper, and all outside money would have to be deposited in a bank and thus taken out of circulation entirely. Otherwise, as long as genuine money was still in circulation, those individuals making use of gold coins would de demonstrate unmistakably through their very actions that they did not want to save on the associated resource costs. But is it possible that money substitutes can thus outcompete and displace genuine money as a medium of exchange? No. Even many hard money theoreticians have been too quick to admit such a possibility. The reason is that money substitutes are substitutes and have one permanent and decisive disadvantage as compared to money proper. Paper notes, claims to money, are redeemable at par only to the extent that a deposit fee has been paid to the depositing institution. Providing safeguarding and clearing services is a costly business, and a deposit fee is the price paid for guarded money. If paper notes are presented for redemption after the date up to which safeguarding fees were paid by the original or previous depositor, the depositing institution would have to impose a redemption charge, and such notes would then trade at a discount against genuine money. The disadvantage of money substitutes is that they must be continuously redeposited and reissued 
in order to maintain their character as money, their saleability at par, and thus that they function as money only temporarily and discontinuously. Only money proper, or gold coins, is permanently suited to perform the function of a medium of exchange. Accordingly, far from inside money ever displacing outside money, the use of money substitutes should be expected to be forever severely limited, restricted essentially to the transaction of very large sums of money and the dealings between regular commercial traders, while the overwhelming bulk of the population would employ money proper for most of their purchases or sales, thus demonstrating their preference for not wanting to save in the way fancied by freedmen. Moreover, even if one assumed for the sake of argument that only inside money is in circulation, while all genuine money is stored in a bank, the difficulties for fiat money proponents do not end here. To be sure, in their view, matters appear simple enough. All commodity money sits idle in the bank. Wouldn't it be more efficient if all of this idle gold were used instead for purposes of consumption or production? For dentistry or jewelry, while the function of a medium of exchange were assumed by a less expensive, indeed, practically costless, fiat money? Not at all. First, the envisioned demonetization of gold certainly cannot mean that a bank thereby assumes ownership of the entire money stock, while the public gets to keep the notes. No one except the bank owner would agree to that. No one would want such savings. In fact, this would not be savings at all, but an expropriation of the public by and to the sole advantage of the bank. No one could possibly want to be expropriated by somebody else. Yet the expropriation of privately owned commodity money through governments and their central banks is the only method by which commodity money has ever been replaced by fiat money. Instead, each depositor would want to retain ownership of his deposits and get his gold back. Then, however, an insurmountable problem arises. Regardless of who, the bank or the public, now owns the notes, they represent nothing but irredeemable paper. Formerly, the cost associated with the production of such paper was by no means only that of printing paper tickets, but more importantly that of attracting gold depositors through the provision of safeguarding and clearing services. Now, with irredeemable paper, there is nothing worth guarding anymore. The cost of money production falls close to zero, to mere printing costs. Previously, with paper representing claims to gold, the notes had acquired purchasing power. But how can the bank or the public sell them? In other words, get anyone to accept them now? Would they be bought and sold for non-money goods at the formerly established exchange ratios? Obviously not. At least not as long as no legal barriers to entry into the note production business existed. For under competitive conditions of free entry, if the non-money price paid for paper notes exceeded their production costs, the production of notes would immediately be expanded to the point at which the price of money approached its cost of production. The result would be hyperinflation. No one would accept paper money anymore, and a flight into real values would set in. The monetary economy would break down completely, and society would revert back to a primitive, highly inefficient barter economy. Out of barter then, once again, a new, most likely gold, commodity money 
would emerge, and the note producers once again, so as to gain acceptability for their notes, would begin backing them by this money. What a way of achieving savings. If one is to succeed in replacing commodity money by fiat money, then an additional requirement must be fulfilled. Free entry into the note production business must be restricted, and a money monopoly must be established. A single paper money producer is also capable of causing hyperinflation and a monetary breakdown. However, insofar as he is legally shielded from competition, a monopolist can safely and knowingly restrict the production of his notes and thus assure that they retain their purchasing power. He then presumably would assume the task of redeeming old notes at par for new ones, as well as that of again providing safeguarding and clearing services in accepting note deposits in exchange for his issuance of substitutes of notes, demand deposit accounts, and checkbook money against a depositing fee. Regarding this scenario, several related questions arise. Formerly, with commodity money, every person was permitted to enter the gold mining and coining business freely, in accordance with the assumption of self-interested, wealth-maximizing actors. In contrast, in order for Friedman's fiat money dividend to come into existence, competition in the field of money production would have to be outlawed and a monopoly erected. Yet how can the existence of a legal monopoly be reconciled with the assumption of self-interest? Is it conceivable that self-interested actors could agree on establishing a fiat money monopoly in the same way as they can naturally agree on participating in the division of labor and on using one in the same commodity as a medium of exchange? If not, does this not demonstrate that the cost associated with such a monopoly must be considered higher than all attending resource cost savings? To raise these questions is to answer them. Monopoly and the pursuit of self-interest are incompatible. To be sure, a motive why someone might want to become the money monopolist exists. After all, by not having to store, guard, and redeem a precious commodity, the production costs are dramatically reduced and the monopolist could thus reap an extra profit by being legally protected from all future competition. This monopoly profit would immediately become, quote, capitalized or in other words, reflected permanently in an upward valuation of his assets, and on top of his inflated asset values, he then would be guaranteed a normal rate of interest return. Yet to say that such an arrangement would be advantageous to the monopolist is not to say that it would be advantageous to anybody else, and hence, that it could arise naturally. In fact, there is no motive for anyone wanting anyone but himself to be this monopolist, and accordingly no agreement on the selection of any particular monopolist would be possible. The position of a monopolist can only be arrogated, enforced against the will of all excluded non-monopolists. By definition, a monopoly creates a distinction between two classes of individuals of different legal quality, between those privileged individuals who are permitted to produce money and those subordinate ones who, to the exclusive advantage of the former, are prohibited from doing the same. Such an institution cannot be supported in the same voluntary way as the institutions of the division of labor 
and a commodity money. It is not, as they are, the natural result of mutually advantageous interactions, but that of a unilaterally advantageous act of expropriation. Accordingly, instead of relying for its continued existence on voluntary support and cooperation, a monopoly requires the threat of physical violence. Moreover, the incompatibility of self-interest and monopoly does not end once the monopoly has been established, but continues as long as the monopoly remains in operation. It cannot but operate inefficiently and at the expense of the excluded non-monopolists. First, under a regime of free competition or free entry, every single producer is under constant pressure to produce whatever he produces at minimum costs. For if he does not do so, he invites the risk of being outcompeted by new entrants who produce the product in question at lower costs. In contrast, a monopolist, shielded from competition, is under no such pressure. In fact, since the cost of money production includes the monopolist's own salary, as well as all of his non-monetary rewards, a monopolist's, quote, natural interest is to raise his costs. Hence, it should be expected that the cost of a monopolistically provided paper money would very soon, if not from the very outset, exceed those associated with a competitively provided commodity money. All right, let's take a quick break really fast and hit our sponsor. And uh, I'm going to get a drink and we will jump right back into this section. Furthermore, it can be predicted that the price of monopolistically provided paper money will steadily increase. In other words, the purchasing power per unit money, and hence its quality, will continuously fall. Protected from new entrants, every monopolist is always tempted to raise price and lower quality. Yet this is particularly true of a money monopolist. While other monopolists must consider the possibility that price increases or a quality decrease due to an elastic demand for their product may actually lead to reduced revenues, a money monopolist can rest assured that the demand for his particular product, the common medium of exchange, will be highly inelastic. Indeed, short of hyperinflation, when the demand for money disappears entirely, a money monopolist is practically always in a position in which he may assume his revenue from the sale of money will increase even as he raises the price of money or reduces his purchasing power. Equipped with the exclusive right to produce money and under the assumption of self-interest, the monopoly bank should be expected to engage in a steady increase of the money supply. For while an increased supply of paper money does not add anything to social wealth, the amount of directly useful consumer and producer goods in existence, but merely causes inflation, lowers the purchasing power of money, with each additional note brought into circulation, the monopolist can increase his real income at the expense of lowering that of the non-monopolistic public. He can print notes at practically zero cost and turn around and purchase real assets consumer or producer goods, or use them for the repayment of real debts. The real wealth of the non-bank public will be reduced. They own less goods and more money of lower purchasing power. However, the monopolist's real wealth will increase. He owns more non-money goods, 
and he always has as much money as he wants. Who in this situation, except angels, would not engage in a steady expansion of the money supply, and hence in a continuous depreciation of the currency? It may be instructive to contrast the theory of fiat money as outlined above to the views of Milton Friedman as the outstanding modern champion of fiat money. While the younger Friedman paid no systematic attention to the question of the origin of money, the older Friedman recognizes that as a matter of historical fact, all monies originated as commodity monies and all money substitutes as warehouse claims to commodity money. And he is justly skeptical of the older Friedrich A. Hayek's proposal of competitively issued fiat currencies. However, misled by his positivist methodology, Friedman fails to grasp that money and money substitutes cannot originate in any other way, and accordingly that Hayek's proposal must fail. In contrast to the views developed here, throughout his entire work, Friedman maintains that a commodity money in turn would be naturally replaced by a more efficient, resource-cost-saving fiat money regime. Amazingly, however, he offers no argumentative support for this thesis, evades all theoretical problems, and whatever argument or empirical observation he does offer contradicts his very claim. There is first off no indication that Friedman is aware of the fundamental limitations of replacing outside money by inside money. Yet, if outside money cannot disappear from circulation, how, except through an act of expropriation, can the link between paper and a money commodity be severed? The continued use of outside money in circulation demonstrates that it is not regarded as an inferior money, and the fact that expropriation is needed for the decommoditization of money would demonstrate fiat money is not a natural phenomenon. Interestingly, after evading the problem of explaining how the suspension of redeemability can possibly be considered natural or efficient, Friedman explicitly recognizes, quite correctly, that fiat money cannot, for the reasons given above, be provided competitively, but requires a monopoly. From there, he proceeds to assert that, quote, the production of fiat currency is, as it were, a natural monopoly, end quote. However, from the fact that fiat money requires a monopoly, it does not follow that there is anything natural about such a monopoly, and Friedman provides no argument whatsoever as to how any monopoly can possibly be considered the natural outcome of the interactions of self-interested individuals. Moreover, the younger Friedman, in particular, appears to be almost completely ignorant of classical political economy and its anti-monopolistic arguments. The axiom that if you give someone a privilege, he will make use of it, and hence the conclusion that every monopolistic producer will be inefficient in terms of cost as well as of price and quality, in light of these arguments, it has to be regarded as breathtakingly naive on Friedman's part, first to advocate the establishment of a governmental money monopoly, and then to expect this monopolist not to use its power, but to operate at the lowest possible costs and inflate the money supply only gently at a rate of 3 to 5% per year. This would assume that, along with becoming a monopolist, a fundamental transformation in the self-interested nature of mankind would take place. It is not surprising that the older Friedman, having had extensive experience with his own ideal of a world of pure fiat currencies, 
as it came into existence after 1971, and looking back on his own central resource cost savings argument for monopolistically provided fiat money of nearly four decades earlier, cannot but acknowledge that his predictions turned out patently false. Since abolishing the last remnants of the gold commodity money standard, he realizes inflationary tendencies have dramatically increased on a worldwide scale. The predictability of future price movements has sharply decreased. The market for long-term bonds, such as consoles, has been largely wiped out. The number of investment and hard money advisors and the resources bound up in such businesses have drastically increased. Money market funds and currency futures markets have developed and absorbed significant amounts of real resources, which otherwise, without the increased inflation and unpredictability, would not have come into existence at all, or at least would never have assumed the same importance that they now have. And finally, it appears that even the direct resource costs devoted to the production of gold accumulated in private hoards as a hedge against inflation have increased. But what conclusion does Friedman draw from this empirical evidence? In accordance with his own positivist methodology, according to which science is prediction and false predictions falsify one's theory, one should expect that Friedman would finally discard his theory as hopelessly wrong and advocate a return to commodity money. Not so. Rather, in a remarkable display of continued ignorance or arrogance, he emphatically concludes that none of this evidence should be interpreted as a, quote, plea for a return to the gold standard. On the contrary, I regard a return to a gold standard as neither desirable nor feasible, end quote. Now, as then, he holds on to the view that the appeal of the gold standard is merely, quote, non-rational, emotional, and that only a fiat money is, quote, technically efficient. According to Friedman, what needs to be done to overcome the obvious shortcomings of the current fiat money regime is find, quote, some anchor to provide long-term price predictability, some substitute for convertibility into a commodity, or alternatively, some device that would make predictability unnecessary. Many possible anchors and devices have been suggested, from monetary growth rules to tabular standards to the separation of the medium of exchange from the unit of account. As yet, no consensus has been reached among them. End quote. From deposit and loan banking to fractional reserve banking. The de-evolution of credit. All right, and that will close out today's episode, and we will be hitting the last section tomorrow, and that will actually close out the whole thing. Um, so this is kind of nicely divided up for us, which I didn't quite realize on my first uh, uh, browse this whole thing. So um, uh, this was a really, really interesting uh, section, particularly on the argument of the monetarist, the, the Friedman position, that, um, that fiat money is actually more efficient. Because it's funny, like, uh, his whole string... I want, I want to read through this whole string again. Where is this thing? He asserts that possibly self-interested long-term... Okay, here it is. Um, so if the uh, 
if his prediction was in fact true, if, if the fiat money, uh, a fiat currency was in fact uh, about cost savings, that, um, that the whole idea is that there is greater productivity because you do not have to worry about gold mining and the resource costs of storing and protecting a commodity money or exchanging it, um, that fiat money is just a more efficient standard. Well, you would see the market grow in a very specific way. You would see the costs of the gold commodity uh, drop, and uh, you would see those markets drop away. In fact, in the uh, notes um, uh, referencing it, he, he, he posts in uh, 1986, there was a piece, The Resource Costs of Irredeemable Paper Money. He actually predicted, and the other monetarist did as well, that the demonetization of gold and the transition to a pure fiat, a pure fiat, oh lord, a pure fiat money system that the price of gold would actually fall, and the official rate at that time was thirty-five dollars per ounce, so that there would be an estimated non-monetary value of gold at around six dollars. So all the all the extra value in gold that it achieves from being a monetary instrument would basically fall away because fiat was replacing it. And that is what the fact that that value is taken out of gold is based or is the explicit proof that the argument is about efficiency, that fiat money is more efficient. So we would be saving that immense amount of value. Obviously, gold is not $6 an ounce. Um, uh, gold is, what, I don't know, 1000 1200 today. Um, and it's specifically because of the relationship um, to uh, fiat money. And it remains a, what is it, a 10 trillion, some, some 7 to 10, 10 trillion dollars, somewhere in there, I can't, I can't remember exactly, but a massive, massive market that continues to have all the giant costs associated with storing, transferring, mining, minting, all that stuff didn't go away. In fact, the argument here was that it actually increased. Um, uh, so uh, let's hit this whole, this whole section. Since abolishing the last remnants of the gold commodity money standard, he realizes inflation tendencies have dramatically increased on a worldwide scale. The predictability of future price movements has sharply decreased. The market for long-term bonds has been largely wiped out. The number of investment and hard money advisors and the resources bound up in such businesses have drastically increased. Money market funds and currency futures markets have developed and absorbed significant amounts of real resources, which otherwise, without the increased inflation and unpredictability, would not have come into existence at all, or would have never assumed the same importance that they now have. And finally, it appears that even the direct resource costs devoted to the production of gold, accumulated in private hoards as a hedge against inflation, have increased. So based on the logic of the position of the monetarist, all of these things would, would necessarily be the opposite after you have a fiat money regime um, because it would suggest that, uh, like, why would, you need, why would you need to hedge against uh, commodity money? Why would you constantly be going into futures markets to hedge against um, price uh, unpredictability? Um, why, like, like, all of these things are the consequences of the exact opposite of what they suggest. So just going back to the core argument and kind of earlier on in a section we just read was like, so do individuals actually want to use fiat 
because of some abstract sense that they're saving the unnecessary expense of mining and minting gold and uh, gold coins and bullion. This, just the whole idea would only ever make sense if they were actually seeing the cost savings themselves. We're talking about self-interested individuals. We, we are admitting the reality that humans want to maximize their own lives and their own production and uh, their own standard of living above that of uh, other people that they don't know. Simple fact of the matter. Like, that's just how things are. And to deny that is just ridiculous. So we are taking that into account. If they are not seeing, seeing that cost savings, then, then in what way are they, particularly since it's like an abstract, distant thing, they, they wouldn't even know all the, if somehow the value of the money increased because its production is lower, but yet we see the exact opposite being true. No fiat money holds its value like a real commodity does. That's, this is why the futures and commodities markets have exploded so heavily. The securities markets has exploded because people dump their money into it to save the value. Because if you don't have money in a 401k and you're just stuffing cash under your, uh, or in your mattress, you don't have a retirement. Like, that's why, I mean, think about how bloated our financial system is and the degree of control that they have over all of our assets. Going back to the idea of the cashless society that we talked about, that it, it in, increases surveillance, it increases abuse and corruption, and exactly uh, you know, how much fractional reserve they can get away with. It's forcing us all to put our assets into their system to obscure exactly how much value is there and open us up to the consequences of their bad liabilities. So in practice, we witness the consequences of this in poor savings rate uh, rates, ever-increasing prices, cost increases across the board, the huge bloated financial system. This doesn't come, out, come about because people think that they're saving some small fraction somewhere um, because of the uh, cost of using gold versus fiat. Um, what is going on outside? Somebody is like running some sort of monster machine. Hold on a second. I'm going to take a break. Uh, I'll be right back. Okay, some, they're digging a trench out there for running some new line. I got a gap here. Uh, hopefully, I got a, a couple minutes to finish this up. Um, uh, so where were we? We were talking about just kind of the consequences of basically the proof that people are trying to protect their money from the inflation and from the inefficiencies of fiat money, which um, opens them up to the abuse and lack of accountability in uh, always having the, your capital and resources held by a third-party institution, which is what we have with 401ks and IRAs and uh, things that we have uh, in huge restrictions on in uh, pulling money out and making use of. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just seems to steamroll and then becomes part of the culture. And then it's just the way things are. And it just gets worse and worse and worse as after generation after generation, uh, is exposed to this. And the idea of just like cash savings just kind of vanishes. And then you have, uh, what is it? 70% of the economy, economy, uh, or people in the U S have like less than a thousand dollars in personal savings, which is insane. And the, the amount of debt is absolutely absurd in comparison to that um but uh uh so that's kind of the core of the 
consequences of uh, what we see in our current regime that basically disprove the what was what really kind of sounds like an excuse of Friedman trying to figure out how to uh, come up with some sort of reason that fiat money would exist naturally, and uh, when obviously the truth is quite the opposite. Um, and one thing that's just so so important to think about and consider is that both even Friedman admits that it cannot exist without a monopoly. And no, a monopolist has zero incentive to lower the costs of the fiat system. No one votes to have the costs change, and, and, and votes don't make any difference anyway. Um, uh, is you, we kind of went over, in, in short at least, in Zappo's piece, Exit and Freedom, it's the low barrier to exit that keeps accountability and abuse in check. It is not the ability to vote and protest. All right, here it comes back again. Sorry about the noise. Um, but in the Fed, like it's Federal Reserve using the U.S. An example, um, as an example, is they're not even it's it's not even an institution that like is voted on. Like like the Fed's just being a bunch of people that are appointed. Um, the bank, oh good lord, the the bank actually has owners and appointed officials. So nothing is actually being overseen other than by the monopolists. And with no economic incentive to curb their self-interest, which is specifically an either elastic demand where, like, like for instance, if, if people charge, like if uh, uh, cell phone service uh, prices, if, let's say there was a monopoly on cell phone service, and they decided that they were just going to charge everybody $3,000 a month for cell phone service, that's elastic demand because you can survive without cell phone service. You can get around it with internet. Uh, shortwave radio, uh, uh, mesh networking, like there's, there's a bunch of other technologies that could exist. And uh, so the fact that it has elastic demand uh, means that they would never be able to get away with that. People would literally just not ever use cell phones, even though it's a superior technology that is more efficient uh, and better because of the price, people would simply work with the annoyance and huge frustration of working around it. So they actually have an incentive still, even as a monopolist, to keep prices low. But there is nothing as inelastic as the demand for money. Medium of exchange is the difference between having a society and not having a society. Like, like economic, like a barter economy is, is, is genuinely not comparable in the degree of what can actually be produced. Um, so it's, it's, it's literally the difference between, okay, I can actually, uh, we actually have the division of labor or we don't. Um, and so that demand is ridiculously inelastic. So they don't even have, even as a monopoly, they have the least of any monopoly incentive to actually, uh, keep their costs low, which means that with self-interest, they're going to maximize the cost of the system. And, that's, and that is explicitly the cost of the system is maximizing their spending power and influence. So uh, th- what the cost of the system is, is their power, which means that not only do they not seek to uh, lower the cost, they directly are benefited by increasing the costs. So whatever the costs are associated with, with gold or 
minting bullion and, you know, transferring gold coins, any fiat paper money system that obviously inevitably has to be run by a monopoly will surpass the cost of a gold system or a commodity money system with flying colors, literally no comparison. And we see that blatantly with the unbelievable costs of the Fed that does not even curb the cost of gold. gold the cost of gold has not changed. The minting and mining and uh, uh, a storage uh, of gold as a hedge against inflation has gone nowhere. It's still right there where it was. Um, in fact, it has increased. So we blatantly see demonstrated with the Federal Reserve that, uh, that they just the, the cost is in their issuing of new money. And like with in consideration of the bailouts and the um, the um, revelation that they issued nine trillion dollars plus in assets that they did not even put on their books and used it to acquire banks and loan uh, basically uh, have debtors as countries in Europe to this banking institution, they can accomplish whatever goal they actually deemed desirable. They can literally, like, ten, we're talking about $10 trillion here um, in money that they didn't even bother putting on their balance sheets. That's country buying money. Um, a way to think about this is that the, the fiat system cannot exist in free competition. So think about every time or every person you hear talk about the U.S. as a free country. And to some degree, degree we have economic freedom. But also consider that the most fundamental, the most saleable good in the entire economy, the most economically significant good, period, one that is core to society, it's money, is a market good that is entirely run and enforced violently by a monopoly, creating two explicit classes of human legal rights. One class has the right to manipulate and control the resources and capital of literally every other person in the second class because their, their right to control money is exactly that the ability to control the resources and capital of everyone who uses money. That's a psychotic proposition. Like, would you really consider what's happening? Um, and it's one that suggests free markets, an actual free market, would not look or behave anything at all like the market we have today. It would, it would be 180 degrees different from what we see in culture, in uh, savings and costs and like prices of goods, whether or not uh, uh, like you have to go into debt to get this or that, um, the trends of prices in pretty much any industry. So right, let's just take, uh, I've talked about before that the ability to direct capital that is not yours, to take resources from someone else through the issuance of new money. Um, Let's just take that $10 trillion number, the $9 trillion plus, uh, just one of the trillions that we know of in the bailout. So, so we're, we're grossly uh, lowering the estimate for their influence. We're just going to take $10 trillion because it's an easy number. They have absolutely issued um, and confiscated vastly more value than that. Um, and we're also ignoring all the $100 trillion plus in liabilities uh, from our banking and financial institutions 
which are doing the same thing. The liabilities, the difference between the liabilities and the assets in those institutions are the degree to which the, the resource supply has been manipulated um, because it's, a, it's no longer a deposit loan uh, situation. It is a fractional reserve. We issue money as loans, uh, and then uh, where those uh, loans are issued is where economic activity is diverted to away from those who have saved. So um, taking just that $10 trillion, the average U.S. citizen earns $35,000 a year. So the average lifetime of the average citizen produces $1.4 million worth of productivity. So I want this to sink in. The ability and act of issuing just the $10 trillion, just that, ignore the $100 trillion other, in costless paper money, irredeemable paper money, and then purchasing, directing, uh, controlling, issuing the equivalent value in assets and resource ownership, the actual purchasing of capital, of companies, of stock, of banks that are backed by all of our resources and goods is the equivalent of the 100% confiscation of the entire lives. Every minute, every sweat, every bloody day on the job, every dream, every life goal, every relationship, anything that any person sought to achieve throughout their entire life and any hope of what world they were trying to build with their entire life from birth to death has been confiscated from 7,143,000 people. That is what it means to spend $10 trillion out of thin air, is to confiscate the entire lives of 7,143,000 people for your vision of the world. And that happens from a policy vote with a board of bankers. 7.14 million human lives worth of production is removed from the economic pool of, of voluntary, productive, free exchange and used for whatever the Federal Reserve wants to buy. That is not a free market. That is slavery in disguise. So, uh, whew, that was a serious one. Um, uh, hopefully, the, I don't even know when the guy stopped making noise, uh, so hopefully the audio isn't too crappy here. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that was just the points that kind of hit home when I was reading this, and those are my thoughts on it, uh, because the, it, it's truly the nature of our monetary and banking system is so obscured, um, and we have such, we have such naive, like, like just kind of kindergarten-level understanding of how it works and, um, you know, what reasons they have. Like, we just ignore the, the obvious reality that people are self-interested and excuse away a monopoly on the most significant uh, society-affecting good that exists. Like, money, the most important good, has a 100% uncontested monopoly over its production and direction. Um, and the cost of its time, the interest rate, it's, uh, it's so ridiculous. 
Um, there's a very good reason. What's that quote? Quote. I want. I want that quote in full before. That's what we'll finish this episode. Quote. Banking system. I'm sure I have it on my computer somewhere, but I'm sure Google will find it better, find it faster. Yes, it is well enough that people of the nation, this is Henry Ford, by the way, I'm not sure if I called that. It is well enough that people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system. For if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And when you truly see what it is, and it's just such an awesome thing that Bitcoin is making this something that people ask. People are asking the question because without something to point at that is contrary, like that's contrarian to that system. Like when people look at Bitcoin, they're like, so why is this exactly? They see the opposite. They see it. So it's forcing people to ask that question. It's forcing people to answer those challenges, which is revealing how stupidly contradictory the entire thing is. So it's just amazing that Bitcoin is doing this, that Bitcoin is making people inevitably who are listening to this show that would probably never stop and, you know, read Hans Hermann Hoppe or think like that without Bitcoin, it wouldn't even be a part of the conversation. Um, it would just be this tiny little corner of nothing. And Bitcoin is shining a big, giant, bright ass spotlight on the monetary and banking system and going, see this is what's real, and this is what you are stuck with. And it's just a powerful, powerful position for uh, Bitcoin to be bringing that uh, into light, keeping it from uh, being hidden from everyone. So, uh, okay, yeah, we will close that here. I've gone on way too far, and uh, wow, okay, I'm getting a phone call. Um, uh, so let's close this out. Uh, do not forget to uh, check out Mises.org. Um, this is, again, written by Hans Hermann Hoppe. He has a huge body of work. We will probably cover, I'm sure, numerous things uh, of his going forward. This will not be the last Hoppe piece that we read. And uh, do not forget to follow me at The Crypto Economy uh, and uh, Mises at, I think it's just Mises on Twitter. I don't know. I'll, I'll put the link up so everybody can check it out. And uh, we will be finishing up tomorrow with part three, the final section of how, or was it, how is it? Oh my God, I already forgot. How is fiat money possible? Can't even remember the title. I read too much. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Crypto Economy Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you all back here tomorrow with another episode. Until then, take it easy, guys.